my name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is wonderful to be here with you again. If you are tracking along with me this summer, we are journeying through the Apostle Paul's life, his journeys, his letters, his Jesus. And we have been mostly in the book of Acts, following along with the Apostle Paul as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and as he went away for some hidden years to learn from Jesus as he pastored in the church in Antioch in Syria, and then as he began his missionary journeys. We are in his third missionary journey in this podcast today. It has been a couple of weeks since I have been here because, you know, summer, (laughs) and we were on vacation, and one weekend we were at state swimming, and uh, this past weekend we were on vacation, and so been a while since I've been here. It's been about two weeks since the last episode. The last episode wrapped up his second missionary journey. And at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, as he was sailing back to Jerusalem before going home to Antioch for a little while, he made a really quick stop in Ephesus. We had seen on his second missionary journey, at the beginning of his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, we had seen the Apostle Paul try to get down to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit told him it was not time yet for him to go there. At the end of his second missionary journey, he is sailing home uh, through the Aegean Sea, and then he will sail home through the Mediterranean Sea, and we, we see him stop in Ephesus. Very quickly, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he meets with some of the Jewish leaders in the synagogue who ask him to stay longer. And in Acts chapter, chapter 18, as he is speaking to the Jewish leaders in the synagogue in Ephesus, Acts chapter 18 verse 21 says, But as Paul left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church and then he went down to Antioch. So he told the Ephesian Jewish leaders, If it is God's will, I will come back to you. And in his third missionary journey, which happened just a short time after the end of his second missionary journey, he does get to Ephesus and he spends substantial time in Ephesus on this third missionary journey. The date is approximately 53 AD right now. This journey will take probably about four years. We know he spends between two and three years in Ephesus and then he has other stops as well. So his third journey begins in chapter 18, verse 23. It says, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now it doesn't necessarily say who was with us and who went back to Jerusalem and Antioch with him. We don't know if Timothy went with him at that time or if Timothy stayed over in Corinth yeah if Timothy stayed in Corinth that's possible we also don't know if Luke is with him right now that's also possible that Luke is with him and then we see throughout the book of Acts that people kind of are coming and going traveling with Paul and then they will often stay in a city and continue building a church in a city as Paul goes on. And so it's not exactly clear who was with him at the, be- at the beginning of this third journey. 
But he is going back through Galatia. So those are churches that he actually planted on the first journey that he has visited actually each journey. He's visiting these same churches throughout Galatia. And he is strengthening the disciples in those churches. Uh, Then Acts chapter 18 takes a bit of a detour and lets us know, I'm just going to summarize it for you, that Aquila and Priscilla, while they are in Ephesus, they meet a young man named Apollos. Apollos knows Jesus. He's a Christian, but he doesn't have all the details correct. So they pull him aside after they hear him speaking, and they give him the full gospel so that he can be an effective minister because they can see in his delivery that he speaks boldly and passionately about Jesus and they want to just correct his theology and then send him on into missions work. So we see them doing that which is fantastic. Then he goes on into Corinth where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila just were previously on the second missionary journey when Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. They sent Apollos back there and Apollos goes to that church in Corinth and he continues building the church in Corinth. Meanwhile, Paul makes his way down. Remember, he has been on this third journey. Paul has been up in the churches in Galatia, which is like northern Turkey. And he makes his way down now into the region of Ephesus, which is the province of Asia in present-day southwest Turkey. And he makes it down there. The Holy Spirit allows him to go down there this time, whereas the second journey, the Holy Spirit said, not yet. And the first thing that Paul does at the beginning of chapter 19 is he meets a group of people that Apollos had been ministering to. But Apollos, remember, when he was in Ephesus, before he got some training by Priscilla and Aquila, he didn't totally understand the message of the gospel. And it seems that what he didn't understand primarily is the role of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul teaches these people, he meets some people, who had been led to Christ by Apollos. Now, we know from Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he actually writes them that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if Apollos had led these people to Christ and they were able to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we know that they did have the Holy Spirit to some degree. They just didn't know it. They didn't know the Holy Spirit. And so Paul explained more about the role of the Holy Spirit to them, and he baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And that is his first mission work in the city of Ephesus. And then the mission work goes on from there. So I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 19. Paul is in Ephesus, and this is the beginning of his ministry here. Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. The way is capitalized. So if you're listening along throughout the book of Acts, the way is a capital W and it means the way of Jesus, the Christian way. So they are persecuting those who follow the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
So the lecture hall of Tyrannus was a very famous lecture hall in the city of Ephesus that the times that it would have been open to the public for public speakers or for guest speakers would have been in the heat of the day. So they had classes there in the mornings and in the evenings, but in the heat of the day, the midday, is when historians believe that it was left open for guest speakers like Paul. So in the heat of the afternoon, Paul would go there and he preached every day for two years in this public hall where anybody could come and listen to him. And so for two years he continued to preach, so much so that it says all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. People came from all over the place to hear the gospel preached through the words of Paul in this lecture hall. Verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Okay, now these are just miracles straight up from the work of God. The Holy Spirit worked through even cloth, handkerchiefs that Paul had touched, they were just able, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing magic going on here. There's nothing specific about Paul that allowed the handkerchiefs to heal people. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is healing people when they have faith to be healed. And of course the question is always, but why doesn't God still heal people like that today? And I would say that he absolutely does. We, we have so many other reasons for healing now. We have medicine beyond what they had then. We have so many explainable or logical ways that healings happen now that I think that sometimes we just are not aware of how many miracles God is constantly working. But God is still certainly miraculously healing people, even if it's not exactly like this. In verse 13, it says, Some Jews who went, around, who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. All right, so we have seen this before throughout the book of Acts that, that demons have to obey the name of Jesus. Demons know the name of Jesus. In the book of James, it says even the demons believe and shudder. It also says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Demons and the devil have to submit to the name of Jesus. That is the way it works in the spiritual realm. The name of Jesus makes the demons flee. The demons know who he is. We see that throughout the gospel accounts as well. When Jesus is coming near to a person who is demon-possessed, the demon inside of the person will most often in the gospel accounts cry out like, stay away from me, Jesus, or what are you going to do to me, Jesus? Because the demons know who Jesus is and the demons have to obey Jesus. These people, these seven sons of the chief priest named Sceva, are 
not believers in Jesus. They are just using his name, invoking his name without the faith, without having faith in Jesus. So they're just using his name. The Holy Spirit is not in this at all. They're just simply faking it. And the Holy Spirit knows it. And surprisingly, the demons know it. The demons know that they're faking it. And the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I have heard about, who are you? You're just faking it. So that's just a really amazing truth and insight into the spiritual realm there that the the demons obey Jesus. And they also are well aware when people are faking it and don't have true faith in the one true God. The demons will not be scared of that person. Verse 17 of chapter 19. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so a drachma was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. So 50,000 drachmas is 50,000 days wages. An unbelievable amount of money, a massive amount of money that the value of these scrolls equaled. So well, while I, while I was researching Ephesus, I learned that Ephesus was steeped at this time in witchcraft and sorcery in the dark arts. So not just worshiping false gods, which it certainly was, but also a great deal of dark magic going on. And so when it says in verse 18, which I already read, but I'll read it again, it said, many of those who believed in Jesus now came and openly confessed what they had done. And those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls and burned them. So what they had done, that is largely pointing to what they had done in witchcraft, which they had done, what they had done in sorcery, in the dark arts, in magic. This is so interesting because when we think about Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which he wrote in about 60 or 61 AD from prison in Rome, and this is probably about 53 or 54 AD, he stayed in Ephesus for two to three years. So this occurrence is somewhere between 53 and 55 probably AD. So about five to seven years before he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, but in, in his letter to the Ephesians, he, in chapter 6, if you're familiar with the armor of God, he talks about, I'll just read it to you instead of telling you about it. In chapter 6 of his letter to the Ephesians, starting at verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Which, of course, those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are everywhere. 
and the powers of this dark world are everywhere. But if a city is celebrating sorcery and the dark arts and magic and witchcraft, then the darkness of that city is extremely substantial. And Paul is writing about how take up the armor of God. We are fighting against this, the spiritual forces of darkness in this place and writing that specifically to Ephesus. Another interesting, interesting thing about Ephesus is in Ephesus at this time was the temple to Artemis. The Artemision is what it was called. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world until it was destroyed in about 260 AD. And it was enormous. The temple, according to its ruins, was 239 feet wide and 418 feet long. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So they have a huge temple to the goddess Artemis in Ephesus. That's going to come up and be very significant as we move on in chapter 19. And it's interesting because Paul has been at his last, on his last missionary trip, he ended his time in Corinth. And Corinth had temples to many different gods, but the biggest temple and the biggest cult of pagan worship in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite. And the temple for Aphrodite was built up on top of the Acropolis in Corinth, which is the, the highest part of the city. So there was a huge temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. There were also shrines or temples in the cities, in, in the city of Corinth, to Hermes, Hercules, Athena, Poseidon, Asclepius, Apollo. So many temples and shrines in the city of Corinth to Greek and Roman gods. And then before that, if you remember from Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Athens, he was distressed as he walked around the city of Athens because there were so many statues and idols and shrines and temples made to false gods. And Paul would have preached up uh, when he preached to the Areopagus in chapter 17 of Acts in the city of Athens. He would have been looking at or very nearby the Parthenon, which was the biggest temple in Athens built to the goddess Athena. So he has been surrounded, in, in the cities he's gone to, he has been surrounded by temples and shrines built to Greek and Roman gods. And the same is true in Ephesus. And in the midst of all of this culture surrounding him, he doesn't spend time tearing down the culture. And I think that's just a really beautiful key lesson that we can take from Paul. He doesn't waste any of his words or his energy or his time tearing down the culture around him. He goes right into the culture. He immerses himself in the culture. And he just preaches Jesus. He, he preaches Jesus. Straight up, just give him Jesus. What a lesson for us. Rather than getting caught up in all the things we disagree about in our culture, rather than getting caught up with pointing out all the things that are wrong in our culture, which Paul could have done. He could have filled his sermons just pointing out all the things that are wrong. 
But instead, he just preaches Jesus. Jesus crucified and resurrected the Savior of the world, grace upon grace, saved by grace through faith. That is his message. Every single place he goes amidst all of the temples to all of the false gods, he just preaches Jesus. And what we find out in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power, not through Paul condemning the people, but through Paul preaching Jesus. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Verse 21, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. So that is modern day Greek. That would be the churches of Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica. Those are the primary places that he wanted to go revisit again. And after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, probably back to Philippi, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little bit longer. Verse 23, about this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, the way is capitalized. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, the goddess of the city of Ephesus, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and he said, you know my friends that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. I'm going to pause there because isn't that fascinating? This guy works with silver. He, he's a metal worker. He crafts small shrines and idols of Artemis for people to take to their house so they can then worship Artemis by worshiping this little idol made out of silver that Demetrius and the other craftsmen made. And his complaint towards Paul is that Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So as people come to faith in Jesus, they are no longer buying the little idols that he made. And he is losing business. He's losing money. So he's going to stir up a riot. But isn't it interesting that we do the same thing? How often do we worship what our own hands have made? We can read this and we can think, of course they're not gods. You literally melted the silver in the iron, in the fire. You shaped it together and then you let it cool. Like you made that. Of course it's not an idol. Like there's nothing to worship there. But how often do we do that to ourselves? Whether it is in our looks or our bodies or our uh, keeping our bodies healthy or fit or strong enough, which is super, super healthy, but at a point it's going to become worship, right? So we have to watch our hearts or money, or vacations, or social media, or a career, or a promotion, or the right image that we are putting out there for others. Like, we become obsessed with these things that are made with human hands, and they become the center of our attention, which is in fact what worship is when something becomes the center of your attention. 
And so we can read this and we can be like, wow, that's crazy. And yet we do it ourselves. If we just dig a little bit deeper, we do it in different ways. So verse 27, Demetrius goes on with his complaint. He says, there's danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Okay, I think this is also very interesting because it says here, as this riot is getting going, the people of the mob grab a couple of Paul's traveling partners, which we also see those names later on in the book of Colossians and Paul's letter to the Colossians, which he wrote at about 61 AD from prison in Rome at the same time he wrote Ephesians. Uh, we find out that Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner of Paul at that time. So it seems that Aristarchus continued traveling with Paul throughout the rest of his travels and even went with him into prison. Gaius, I've learned, is a really common name. So when we see his names mentioned in other letters, which we do, it may or may not be the same person. However, uh, they grab those two and Paul wants to go preach to the crowd but even the city officials won't let him. And it's interesting to me how often God is using secular leaders throughout the book of Acts to help protect Paul. You can see the Lord's protective hand. And of course, we do know that Paul went through a great deal of suffering and persecution, but we can also see that there are several times where God allows the city officials to protect Paul. We saw it in his first mission trip when he was on the island of Cyprus. We had Sergius Paulus come to faith in Christ, and he was a proconsul of Cyprus. And we had we have this guy, the the city officials in these guys, the city officials who it says are friends of Paul. And then in Corinth, we had Gallio, who was a pro-council of Achaia, who protected Paul. So there's just several times where we have public servants acting as protectors over Paul. All right, verse 32. The assembly, the assembly was in confusion. Some people were shouting one thing, some another thing. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I think that's so funny, and I think that Luke, as he records this, explains mob mentality to a T, that people don't even know why they're there. People are shouting this, people are shouting that, and most of the people don't even know why they're there. It's just mob mentality where nobody is thinking for themselves. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd. 
Now we're going to see the city clerk stand up for Paul and protect Paul. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have not robbed temples nor blasphemed, blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened here today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there's no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So Paul was protected from this mob who would have probably wanted to kill him. And he was protected again by a city clerk, by a government official who probably was not a believer in Jesus and God intervened in that way. Some people, some scholars argue quite persuasively for an imprisonment in Ephesus. There's not one recorded in the book of Acts, but some scholars argue that he probably was imprisoned in Ephesus perhaps at this time or perhaps even earlier while he was still preaching in the in the lecture hall of Tyrannus that he could have been a prisoner and allowed lecturing rights because he was in Ephesus for between two and three years. So that's why some people think he must have had a short imprisonment while he was there. We don't know for sure, but at this point, Paul is going to leave Ephesus. Uh, I'm gonna start in chapter 20, chapter 20, verse one. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye, and he set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arriving in Greece, where he stayed for three months. So he went back to Corinth. That's where he's at right now, and it says he's in Greece for three months. He's in Corinth. While he was in Ephesus for those three years, he he actually did take one trip quick, one quick trip to Corinth. We That's recorded in his letters to the Corinthians. We find out that he traveled quickly to Corinth and then came back to Ephesus because Corinth was just having a lot of struggles in their church and Paul was writing letters. So 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus for sure during those three years that he was in Ephesus. And it seems that 2 Corinthians is probably written from Macedonia, which probably means Philippi, during this time here where he travels through Achaia, which is Greece, Corinth, and into Macedonia, which is Thessalonica and Philippi primarily. So he writes those letters there. We do know that there's a couple of probably two lost letters that he wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have. Scholars have pieced together things he says in the letters we do have of First and Second Corinthians and can see that there are two lost letters that we don't have, which he probably also wrote from Ephesus. So he has been ministering to the Corinthians through letters and a quick trip the whole time that he was in Ephesus. Now that he has left Ephesus, he is going to go and stay in Corinth for three months and work with them and and then also travel to some of the other places. 
All right, so he stayed in Greece for three months. I'm going to start reading at chapter 20, verse 3 and a half. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus, okay, we heard his name also earlier in the mob in Ephesus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, and Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Okay, Tychicus, he has a very important role to play later on. He continues traveling with Paul until at least Paul goes to prison in Rome in about 60 AD. He's traveling with Paul. And from prison in Rome, when Paul writes his letters to the city of Colossae and the, and the city of Ephesus, and also a personal letter to his friend Philemon, who lives in Colossae, Tychicus is the one who carries those letters. So those letters all get sent together. They get written at the same time and sent together with Tychicus, who carries them back to Asia and delivers them at Ephesus Colossae and at the house of Philemon. So Tychicus is significant there. Tra uh, verse 5, These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later we joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So the festival of unleavened bread is Passover. One thing that's really important and stands out in the book of Acts very much, and in Paul's letters, is just to remember that when, when Paul said that we are not saved by the law, which he wrote over and over and over again in many, many different ways of saying that the law does not save us. That does not mean, it never did mean that Paul was throwing out the Old Testament. Paul loves and cherishes the Old Testament. And Paul loves and cherishes his Jewish roots, very much so. And he he celebrates the Jewish holidays. So he's celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. We're going to see in a moment that he really wants to get to Jerusalem before the festival of Pentecost. It's very dear to his heart. He writes very clearly that it is not the way to salvation. The way to salvation is by faith in Christ alone, but he does not throw out the Old Testament. We are, when we are Christians, we are Old Testament and New Testament people. The whole scripture is the story of God. The whole scripture points us to Jesus. The whole scripture is the story of salvation, of God stepping into humanity to save his people. The whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We are people of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in his life and in his preaching. Okay, the next part is a quick anecdote that is funny. <laughs> so I don't want to skip over this. So he is on his way home. This second, this third missionary journey has been long, but actually in the book of Acts, it is shorter than the second missionary journey, even though the time it takes in real time is longer. It's like three to four years long, uh, but it's much more succinct in the book of Acts. But I don't want to skip this part. So he's on his way home. He's almost done with this journey, but he stops in Troas. And I want to read what happens in Troas. 
verse 7 of chapter 20. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. (laughs) There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. (laughs) I just think Luke is so funny. I mean, you gotta just see his sense of humor. As he was talking about the mob earlier in Ephesus, when he said that most people didn't even know why they were there. And now he's like, Paul kept on talking till midnight. And then the very next sentence, he says the man was falling into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. (laughs) When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and he was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He said he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, and he broke bread, and he ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So the man falls out the window because he falls asleep while Paul talked on and on. And I just love that at first Luke said he was talking until midnight, because he had so much to say and he was going to sail on and leave Troas and he had so much to say to the people about Jesus. And then after the man falls, they break some bread, they have a snack, and then he speaks till daylight (laughs) about Jesus. And you just know, if you've gotten to know the Apostle Paul, you know that he wasn't speaking to hear himself talk. He was speaking because he loved Jesus so much. And he wants the people to know everything about Jesus. Everything that Jesus has revealed to Paul. Paul wants the people to know. He so loves Jesus and he so loves people. He wants to convey everything. He wants to communicate everything. He wants to seize every moment he has to share Jesus with people. He doesn't even want to take time to sleep. I'm so inspired by that. He doesn't even want to take time to sleep. He just wants people to know Jesus with every breath he has. All right. In the next bit, it's going to tell us a little bit about where they sailed. They are sailing home. So they are in Troas right now. And if you remember Troas, Troas is actually in the second missionary journey they were, they were in Troas. It's in, it's on the coast, the western coastline of modern-day Turkey. And it was in Troas previously in Acts chapter 16 when they had already been told by the Holy Spirit that they couldn't go north into the regions of, like, northern modern-day Turkey. And they couldn't go south into the region, the province then called Asia of southwestern modern-day Turkey. And so they just went straight west to the port city of Troas, and they waited there, and God gave them a vision to come over to Macedonia. So that was the, that's the city of Troas. It's a port city. They're there again, and they're going to set sail through the Aegean Sea and then through the Mediterranean Sea to get back home. Paul really wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So the next little bit of this text in chapter 20 is 
is telling us about where they sailed. Now, when they sail through there, they actually are going to sail around the southwest portion of modern-day Turkey, which is going to include Ephesus. So they're, they're passing Ephesus again. But Paul really wants to get to Jerusalem. So even though he loves these people in Ephesus so much, he actually sends message to the Ephesian church leaders and asks them to come to the coast and meet him on the coast so that he can see them without going into the city because he's in a time crunch. As these leaders come to Ephesus to meet with Paul, they are deeply saddened because Paul tells them, I'm probably never going to see you again. I'm quite certain that I will never see you again. And they don't want him to go into Jerusalem because they are quite sure that he will get arrested and killed in Jerusalem. And Paul agrees with him, agrees with them that he might get arrested in Jerusalem. But he is intent on going there no matter what. As he has been going through all these churches, he has been collecting financial support for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because their persecution is so great in Jerusalem. And so he has been collecting financial support for the church and it's so important to him that he goes to Jerusalem to deliver it and that he spends Pentecost in Jerusalem. So in verse 22 of Acts 20, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You might recognize that. That that is Acts chapter 20 verse 24. It's one of the key verses that I chose for this whole podcast series. This is where it comes in as the Ephesian leaders are crying with Paul. We're going to find out later that they are crying with Paul as he sails onward to Jerusalem, knowing that they won't see him again. And he just, this beautiful phrase, you're right, I might get arrested in Jerusalem, but I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's what I'm about. That is what the Apostle Paul is about, testifying to the good news of God's grace. And how much does that, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, that he went into all these cities full of temples and shrines to false gods. Ephesus was full of dark magic. And he doesn't spend his time tearing up the culture. He spends his time testifying to the good news of the grace of God. That is how he uses his breath. Dear friends, that is how I want to use my breath, like the breath that God has given to me. I don't want to be using it, tearing up things negatively. I I think I do that and I don't want to. I want to stop doing that if that's how I'm spending my breath. I want to use my breath testifying to the good news of the grace of God. That is how I want to use the words and the voice that God has given to me. Now Paul says to his friends, Now I know 
that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Paul knows, I mean, he, he has known all along that his work will likely eventually end in death. And he is quite a few years at this point. He's at least 10 at least 10, maybe 12 years from his death at this point. If we are in like 56 AD, perhaps right here, maybe 57 AD, we think that Paul was martyred around 67 AD. So he's got a good 10 years left at this point, but he can probably feel the pressure amping up and just knowing that his time is short. And so he just lets them know, you're not going to see me again. He tells them to keep watch over yourselves and the flock that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of. And then he just, he tells them at the, at at verse 30, he says, remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. He loves these people. (laughs) He loves them and he loves Jesus. And he says, for three years, I taught you with tears about Jesus. And then in verse 36, it says, when Paul finished speaking to them, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What, they gre- what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And that is the end of his third missionary journey. He goes from there, he gets to Jerusalem. We will find out in our next episode what happens when he gets to Jerusalem. What I really want to impart to you today is the love that Paul had for people. The love that Paul had for Jesus and the love that Paul had for people. I should say it that way. Now, one thing that's really interesting is these Ephesians friends, these Ephesian friends, uh, they are so dear to him. And we know that when he was in Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians. We know that. And 1 Corinthians is his, it includes his famous portion about love. And I just want to read the beginning of it, actually the less common, the less well-known beginning of, of his chapter on love, which is 1 Corinthians 13, because I think he learned this along the way in his journeys. Because remember, when he started out, when this podcast started out, Paul was a hater of believers in Jesus. He hated believers in Jesus. He worked to persecute and destroy the church. Now we see him by his ship on a beach weeping and embracing and kissing Christian friends that he loves so dearly that he says I taught you for three years with tears he is he has grown to be an immense lover of people and I just want to share with you what he wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus about love if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but I don't have love I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give my body to the hardship that I might boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I think that Paul learned over the course of his ministry work that love accounts for everything and that's that's what Jesus said too they'll know you are Christians by your love they'll know you that or that my followers by your love he said this is my command love each other Paul loved people he loved Jesus and he loved people and because of that people responded to the gospel because they were loved by Paul and through that they learned that they were loved by God This is key as we work to spread the gospel around our cities, our homes, our neighborhoods, our world, our culture, is we need to love people. And as we love people, the love of God will work through that. And and the love of God will have a way to work through that if we are loving people. Now, that doesn't mean that we love people and don't preach the gospel. Paul loved people and preached the gospel with every single breath he took. All of his words that he used were preaching the gospel, testifying to the good news of the grace of God. We need to keep preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of God. But do it in love, letting people know that we love them. And that we are not going to condemn their culture, but we are going to preach the love and truth and good news of God into the culture in which we live. And that is how people will see light shining through the darkness. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again as we find out what happens when Paul goes to Jerusalem. I hope you have a great day. Bye.